you just cannot ignore india in the global context because it's such a huge population if you leave everything else apart it's just such a huge population a burgeoning population of reproductive uh, of you know reproductive age group couples india is what is known as in the de- demographic sweet spot in global terms right now so we are going to have a young growing population over the next 30 years say up to 2040 2050 and uh, the needs of this population the requirements for reproductive health care the requirements for fertility for ivf it just makes it a very exciting space to work in in this field in india 1.4 billion people and almost 100% self pay patients those two figures alone are probably why you're going to hear a lot more about the fertility field in india particularly the ivf business market in india a lot in the coming decade almost 5% of my audience comes from india and i've never created any content for the indian market you've noticed that we're creating a lot more content recently and as we create more we'll give you options to segment i want this kind of content um you don't have to deliver as much of this while we get to that you might listen to this episode whether you live in the united states or canada or elsewhere in the world because the indian market as far as i can tell is going to get a larger and larger share of attention both from your side the clinical lab scientific peer reviewed side but especially from the business side the genetics companies the pharmaceutical companies are going to be spending a lot of their attention on india in the coming decade they already are so i bring on a guest dr kosh dastidar he is part of the center that is one of the pioneer centers in india they are in kolkata india so he talks about his connection to that practice group to the pioneer history uh in india he talks to us about the patrick stepto and the howard jones of india and what happened to that person then we move on to what models are like in india what we're used to seeing in the united states and canada and the uk with large health systems large research hospital university ivf is not really the case in india it's almost entirely private practice private partnerships partnerships between physicians sharing ownership is relatively new according to dr dashtidar and now really large companies are both consolidating in india as well as forming new companies in the subcontinent dr dashtidar was trained at cambridge university and oxford university in embryology and i hope you really enjoy his perspective on what may become the world's largest ivf market dr dashtidar bish welcome to inside reproductive health Hi Griffin it's great to be here and I'm sure it's morning in America so good morning to all your viewers and uh, yeah it's nice to be here it's just after my practice here in Indian local time it's evening and uh, nice to be here well, I look forward to asking you questions about the partner associate model in India but before I do that you and I met at ASRM and we met at the business of minds talk at ASRM and we got to have a little small talk after the panel discussion and i i was telling you about how 5% of my audience comes from india even though i've created exactly 0.0% of our content about 
the Indian market. And you told me said, if you start to cover the Indian market, the folks that work in reproductive health in India are going to be really engaged and really interested. And, and I, I, you said you, you will develop a, a following or you said something like that. What did you mean by that? You see, Griffin, firstly, yeah, I completely remember our meeting at the ASRM and uh, it was a great session. I thought it was a very different session to what I've been used to at past ASRMs. And uh, then we had our follow-up conversation. And what I meant was that both in terms of reproductive medicine and fertility or infertility or IVF, as well as in terms of general reproductive health and women's health, you just cannot ignore India in the global context because it's such a huge population. If you leave everything else apart, it's just such a huge population, a burgeoning population of reproductive uh, of you know reproductive age group couples. India is what is known as in the de- demographic sweet spot in global terms right now. So we are going to have a young growing population over the next 30 years, say up to two th- 2040, 2050. And uh, the needs of this population, the requirements for reproductive health care, the requirements for fertility, for IVF, it just makes it a very exciting space to work in in this field in India. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of scope for engagement, for discussion, for brainstorming. And for a podcast like yours, I think there's a lot of scope for engaging with issues in India right now requirements for IVF tell me about the do you mean unique considerations for in India around IVF so uh you know India in terms of the IVF industry uh, though India was a pioneer country uh, as long as, as as far as starting IVF is concerned or early development and research in IVF is concerned India started really early i mean india was contemporary to the UK or to the US uh, in terms of, you know, getting off the board with IVF research. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to be associated with one of those pioneer centers. So the center that I am associated with in Calcutta, this center has been associated with the birth of India's third IVF baby in 1986 and with the birth of India's second ICSI baby, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI. You know, which is specifically indicated for severe male factor infertility, where you know the sperm count is really low, or the sperm are not motile, and other reasons. So this center was associated with India's third IVF baby and second ICSI baby as back as far back as the 1980s and 1990s. So, uh, so India did get off the blocks early, but the problem is that the field of infertility IVF is still underserved. There's still a lot of patients who don't have access to treatment. There's still a large nascent vacant space available for uh, IVF centers and IVF services. So yeah, it's uh, it's a big market and a lot of it is still untapped. In the United States, the name is Howard Jones. In the UK, it's Patrick Steptoe. So India's contemporary to the US and the UK at that time. Who was the big name in India at that? Who's the Patrick Steptoe or Howard Jones of Indian IVF? So that's a very, very interesting question, Griffin. And you have to hear me out for around a couple of minutes or five minutes here because it's an interesting and it's a slightly complex story because uh, the first IVF pregnancy in India and the first delivery of an IVF baby in India 
happened contemporary, believe me or not, happened contemporary to the first IVF baby born in the world in the UK in Cambridge in 1978 under Dr. Professor Robert Edwards and Dr. Patrick Steptoe, as early as that, contemporary in the same year, which is not what India can say about a lot of different, uh, you know, arenas of scientific endeavor. But in IVF, the first Indian IVF baby was born in the same year as the first IVF baby in the world. It was done by Professor Subhash Mukherjee, by Professor Subhash Mukherjee, who was based in the very city in which I'm sitting right now speaking to you, Calcutta. The name of the baby is, is Durga. And uh, the problem was that his contemporary medical society, the Society of Gynecologists and other people with vested interests, just did not believe his work and just did not, they, they raised doubts and questions over, over uh, his work. He was ostracized. He was hounded by politicians, by bureaucrats. And he was led to such a state of mental disarray that he, he committed suicide. Okay. So this is how India's IVF story begins. After this, one of his students, one of his early students, got together, collaborated with a very eminent senior gynecologist in Calcutta. And they started what is possibly India's second IVF program, again here in the city that I'm working in, in Calcutta. Those two names are Professor B.N. Chakravarti, who was the gynecologist, and Dr. Sudarshan Ghosh Dastidar, who was the IVF embryologist and the guy in the lab. They got together and started the program in Calcutta. And a second program started in Mumbai, or as you might probably know it as Bombay, where a collaboration between Dr. Indira Hinduja and Professor Anand Kumar took place. So there were these two centers and these two programs which started simultaneously after the death of Dr. Subhash Mukherjee. And these two centers both delivered IVF babies in 1986. So I belong to one of these two programs. So the program in which I am a part of right now and where I'm sitting right now speaking to you, this is Dr. Sudarshan Ghosh Dastidar's program, IVF uh, Center. So this is a pioneer center and that's how early it was, you know. So the names are really Professor Subhash Mukherjee to start with and then Professor B.N. Chakravarti, Dr. Sudarshan Ghosh Dastidar, Dr. Indira Kumar and Dr. Anand, uh, Dr. Indira Hinduja and Dr. Anand Kumar. These would be the early pioneers. So what did these two new pioneers, after Dr. Mukherjee's death, if part of the reason that brought him to that demise was either ridicule or lack of acceptance, then how did these two programs form in that aftermath? So, you know, that, that story is also very interesting and it, it's, not very, it's not very similar to each other. These are two different stories. So the, the program which developed in Mumbai or Bombay under Dr. Anand Kumar and Dr. Indira Hinduja was a nationally funded, nationally supported program. So it was, you know, it had the support of the Indian Council of Medical Research and a big hospital. So it was a very structured, very organized program. And the program which simultaneously started in Calcutta uh, under Professor B.N. Chakravarti and Dr. Sudarshan Ghosh Dastidar, this was a private initiative. This was a private initiative just between these two very enterprising, very courageous uh, individuals. And uh, they collaborated, they pooled in their own resources, their own earnings, and they started an IVF lab and they started a program in Calcutta. And those guys in Mumbai who were funded and supported by a very, very prominent Indian research agency, they started their program in Bombay. 
and yeah they both led to pregnancies again you know as strange as it may sound they both led to deliveries of ivf babies in the same year again in 1986 were they affiliated with research universities with academic hospital systems were they c- completely independent these were both both were independent programs but the bombay program was supported by one of the prominent indian research agencies research but bodies. not but not part of uh, a teaching hospital not part of a large hospital system it was funded by a research the bombay program had close links to a large hospital but not the calcutta program it was completely privately started and privately uh, funded program and this is in the mid 1980s in calcutta so this started off in uh, the early 1980s this started off in 1979 1980 and uh, it it i mean you know you'll you'll be interested to know that uh, they had their first ivf pregnancies which delivered which led to a successful delivery of a baby in 1986 but the calcutta program interestingly reported the first IVF pregnancy in India to be reported in an international scientific congress in the World Congress on IVF in Helsinki in, in Finland in 1984. Unfortunately, that pregnancy did not go up to term. So that pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage a few months later. But yeah, the work started in 1979, 1980, 81. And both these centers had deliveries, successful deliveries in 86. I'm wondering if this is setting us up for a different model in India than what we saw in the United States. Generally, what we saw in the United States after Dr. Jones throughout the 1980s, most IVF, virtually all of it was happening within research hospitals uh, systems and then started to leave a little bit in the 1980s to have independent IVF centers. Like I think Boston IVF was among the first, a lot more in the mid-1990s and then through the early 2000s but if if there were two programs essentially starting simultaneously in India it sounds like Calcutta was completely independent then what roots are there to the, the then then how did the model for Indian IVF develop after that so you know uh, you know Griffin I must uh, c- congratulate you because this point you just raised it's such a prescient observation on your part because uh, you've hit the proverbial nail right on the head because uh, that is exactly what happened. Owing to the fact of, you know, how these two early initial pioneer programs started off, from there, if we trace the history of IVF in India from then onwards, right up to today, you will find that the predominant players in the IVF market has always been private centers. So that's the way it started off and that's the way it continued and that's the way it still is today. Uh, majority of the IVF market in India is dominated by private players. It started off that way from the 1980s, 1990s. It's persisted to today. Yes, uh, there are different models as well. So there are big hospitals, big freestanding individual private hospitals, which have developed IVF units. There are large freestanding government-funded teaching institutions, teaching hospitals, which also have IVF units, though very few in number. Let me tell you, very few in number. And uh, the very recent development, which is as recent as the last decade or so, is the emergence of the IVF chain, you know, like a corporate group, which is putting in its money to set up IVF centers all over the country. So you have all these models, but it really started off 
with individual enterprising private individuals and doctors who set up private IVF centers. And it's the, the root of that could be traced back, in fact, to the way that the pioneering IVF work started in India, as you so correctly pointed out, I must tell you, I never thought of it this way. So did the private IVF practice in India take, uh, did it replicate the general practice model at first? You, you have other independently owned general practices or maybe other specialties and subspecialties. Did the first REIs in the first fertility specialists in India just say, okay, we're just going to do that, but with an IVF lab? How did it differ? I'm not very sure that's the case, you know, Griffin. So, so what, what really happened was if you go back to the 1980s and, and uh, you know, early 1990s, uh, healthcare generally in India uh, has always been sort I, I don't have the exact numbers or the exact data with me, but it's always been reasonably fairly divided between the private sector and the government sector, you know, between individually run private hospitals and private clinics, as well as large hospitals, chains, government hospitals, teaching hospitals. So that balance has always been there in medical practice in India right from the beginning. It's interesting why, and you raise a very interesting question, to be honest, uh, you know, uh, this is something I haven't pondered on much in the past, but I guess the reason why IVF really took off in the private sector is because of the inherent nature of the subject. IVF is such a multifactorial subject it needs so much of quality control. It needs so much of oversight. There are so many different aspects which are going on. You know, there's the laboratory, there's the operating room, there's ultrasounds happening, there's reproductive endocrinology. So it's it's really different fields of expertise which have to collaborate in a very close and well-synced manner. You have the REI, you have somebody who's doing the ultrasounds, you have a surgeon, you have a gynecologist, you have an embryologist in the laboratory, an andrologist, uh, Apart from just the science part of it, IVF right from the beginning was also, you know, it's an institution. It's not just one man sitting in a clinic seeing patients and writing prescriptions. It's a business. It's it's a it's 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 a, it's a company as well. Or every IVF center is, is essentially a small company as well, right? So, I think because it needed so much of collaboration and looking at so many different aspects, and they had to be perfectly attuned to each other, perfectly working together with each other, I think that was very, very difficult to achieve in a large setup, in a large government hospital where, you know, it was very watertight compartments, you know, people didn't really collaborate so much, didn't really, it was very difficult to get different people of different specialities to to always work together in a coordinated manner. So it was easier to just break away from that model and start off a small center. So we have two different origins in Kolkata and Mumbai. And then do we almost instantly start to see private IVF centers opening in Bangalore and New Delhi and other parts of the country? Or did it continue to be fairly unknown in those two cities before it spread to the rest of the subcontinent? A bit of both. So, you know, initially in the 1980s, uh, particularly, uh, there was a lot of monopoly in uh, the IVF business, if you will, because uh, so these these two centers were there in Calcutta and in Mumbai. And of course, there were other centers which were coming up, other leading doctors who took charge and who, you know, set up institutes in different states and different cities of the country. But I think it is uh, the population largely remained underserved 
in terms of fertility medicine, in terms of reproductive medicine, IVF services. I think it's really the last, you know, it's really the last 15 years. It's the last 15 years which has seen a burgeoning, booming interest in the field all over the country and setting up of many, many new centers. And so how did the first fertility specialists in India subspecialize? Did they train abroad? Did they develop a fellowship program or some kind of training, licensure, certification in India? Tell us about how they subspecialized. Again, you know, that's another another very interesting question. So right at the beginning, the the early pioneers I spoke to you about, they were pretty much self-trained, you know. So uh, they were self-trained individuals who uh, traveled the world. They went to conferences. They went to the uh, European meetings and the American society meetings. At that time, you didn't have an ASRM. At that time, you had something which was known as the American Fertility Society or the AFS, right? And uh, the ESHRE in Europe wasn't even formed at that time. uh, What is now the ESHRE, those same group of leaders were just uh, organizing conferences in Europe, which were going by the name of World Congress on in vitro fertilization, stuff like that. So these early pioneers traveled to those uh, those early centers in Europe and the USA. They observed, they uh, found mentors, and they learned. And then they really spread this education and they spread the training to the rest of the country, to the rest of the doctors, these early pioneers we, we spoke about. And then gradually you find that uh, in the organized sector, some courses and some training programs on REI, on embryology started in different hospitals, in some nodal uh, centers, for example, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences or the AIMS in Delhi, that started a, a, a very a robust IVF program. But training in clinical embryology, and I would like to stress on this because this is a, this is a very unique uh, Phenomena: the training, uh, structured, formal university training in clinical embryology, both theoretical as well as hands-on, didn't happen until much later. So that's really an issue of the last 10, 15 years. Before that, uh, all clinical embryologists were people who had learned by working under one of these early pioneers or by working with somebody who had learned from these early pioneers. So, so training in clinical embryology became structured only much later. Uh, training in REI started to get structured before that. But to be honest, to this day, even now, uh, we have very limited training available in a structured university setup format, both whether for clinical embryology or for REI. It's available, yes, but not widely available. It's very few places which offer such training. And so then how did the first independent practices develop in in terms of businesses? Was it like in the United States where you have one or two or three docs coming together and then they form a partnership together? In those days, it was usually equal partnerships. But if if it was a single founder, they would often retain a controlling majority partnership, if not majority plurality controlling partnership as they brought on additional partners. What was it like in India? So, you know, now now we're really getting into the meat of the matter, into the core of uh, uh, what I'm assuming your podcast is about and what we also discussed at ASRM, the models. So you have to understand that the early models was exceedingly, exceedingly dominated by 
single expert-led centers, right? So the early IVF centers in the 1980s, in the 1990s, even up to the early 2000s, every leading IVF center was by and large headed by one specialist, by one specialist who was uh, trained, either self-trained or had trained themselves by visiting these other programs I spoke about in REI, obstetricians and gynecologists who wanted to subspecialize in REI. And they established these centers almost uh, almost like a private limited enterprise, like a private limited company where they hired uh, other doctors to work with them. They hired clinical embryologists, but it was really individual, single REI specialists who were setting up these early centers. Partnerships and collaborations between groups of doctors is a much more recent phenomena. Uh, it's It's... It's been happening maybe for the last 15 years. And uh, of course, the corporate uh, entry into IVF is even more recent. So these private limited companies were often founded by fertility doctors, but they were not bringing on other fertility doctors as partners to own in their company. They were hiring them as employees and expanding their companies and our, our fertility specialists working together to form their to, to partner together to own their practices that's more recent to the last 15 years absolutely absolutely that's right yes where did you come in uh, in this model so uh, after i uh, after i uh, finished my studies and my you know I, I finished my medical degree i finished my training in uh, obgyn I traveled to the UK, so I, I was based in the UK for a few years. My entire training in IVF uh, clinical embryology in the laboratory aspects of it. So I, I'm a trained, I should have introduced uh, myself perhaps earlier. So I, I'm a trained REI as well as I'm a trained clinical embryologist. So my, my training in REI and in OBGYN is mostly based in India, but uh, my core training in the laboratory aspects of it in clinical embryology was in the UK. So I joined the University of Oxford in the UK in 2012. Uh, I owe all my training in IVF embryology to, to Oxford. Uh, then I came back to India. I super specialized, you know, further sub-specialized in REI and OBGYN. I also trained uh, in, in OBGYN again in the UK where I headed in 2019. So I was in the University of Cambridge at Addenbrooke's Hospital, which is Cambridge University Hospital. So I finished all of that. I returned to India, and then I started uh, getting in touch with uh, with the leading practitioners with whom I'd had some experience working in my junior days. You know, as a research associate, as a associate uh, clinician, and that's how I uh, picked my field, and that's how I jo- joined, and I started working, and it's been it's been okay so far. And are you yourself, are you uh, what we would call an associate, an, an employee of what you mentioned, uh, one of these private limited companies, or are you a partner with, with other physicians in the ownership of your practice group? No, so, so it's very interesting. So, you know, uh, when I mentioned, I, I should have perhaps mentioned this earlier, but I thought let's keep this strictly professional and strictly accurate to the, to the history. But when I mentioned about these early groups of pioneers who set up these two first IVF programs in in, in Calcutta and in Mumbai, uh, what I should have also told you is that one of the two pioneers who set up the first IVF program in Calcutta 
Dr. Sudarshan Ghosh Dastidar, he's my dad. So, uh, you know, I I have grown up with IVF from when I was really young, from when I was in high school, from when I was in medical school, I've been growing up with IVF. So so I, I just came back from the UK and I, and I joined him and I've been working with him. Uh, I'm also associated with other hospitals now. Uh, I'm involved in this practice right now as a, as a consultant, as a research consultant, and a, and a consultant in the in the program, but uh, it, it's just a it, it's it's a it's a mostly academic and a research role because I have other uh, primary um, medical jobs which I do. But yeah, that's how I'm involved right now. I I thought about asking you if you were connected to that Dr. Coach Dasidar because I, it, well, I had no idea how common or or uncommon of a name that could be. Uh, so 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 you've 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 grown up in this field, and then so I I suppose that you've been able to see uh, things change. You talked a little bit. You said okay, partnerships is relatively new in the last ten to fifteen years, uh, but but. When did you start to see consolidation happen in the Indian fertility field? I, w- I would say that's that's as recent as you know the last uh, the last couple of decades. It's as recent as the last couple of decades. It's it's really been a fragmented field till then. It's really been the domain of small private players and small private uh, privately established institutions. But in the last couple of decades, we've seen both the models. You know, we've we've seen specialists come together to join hands to form partnerships and work together, and we've also seen the entry of uh, large chains, which have funded and backed the setting up of multiple different uh, IVF centers. That's relatively recent, last couple of decades. So, is it the entry of large chains like? you know, EV coming in and forming new companies or is is that happening more than the, cons- oh, I'm buying this practice, these six practices in New Delhi and, and merging them together and consolidating. Are we seeing one more than the other? It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. So you, you mentioned EV. So yes, EV made its entry into uh, India you know, fairly recently in the last uh, couple of decades. And the model that EV followed was EV approached uh, already established and prominent IVF centers with a leading REI, with a leading man who was already working in the field. And they joined hands with these private uh, centers and these private practitioners. So they remodeled and rebranded the center as an EV center. And that's how EV started to grow. Uh, But following EV, there have been others uh, who have just... You know, it's just been a corporate group. It's just been a business house who don't necessarily have any experience in the medical field or don't necessarily have any experience in the IVF field who have just financially backed the setting up of uh, of IVF chains. They have hired people with experience. They've hired doctors and embryologists and they've formed those teams and they've set up those chains. So so both these models have, uh, have been apparent. Is there more opportunity in... India because of the way the training structure is set up for these large companies to come in to consolidate and then to expand I mean it could be you could say there's less because there's no fellowship program that are funneling new fertility specialists in but is the lack of a of a fellowship structure the lack of a training structure the opportunity for these companies to come and say, well, hey, we got a country of 1.5 billion people that they don't have a training, uh, you know, a, a 
a universal training system for fertility specialists. We'll set it up. We'll we'll do all the training, and and then we don't have the same bottleneck problem of fertility specialists that other countries do. Can that be the case, or am I missing something? I think it's a little different, Griffin. So I think uh, the issue here is that there's still a lot of scope for uh, you know for for setting an IVF footprint in India for sure. There is scope to to establish a new IVF footprint in India. The the problem is the training you mentioned, the REI training you mentioned, that is rather a hurdle because you know uh, be, because there is no robust structured uh, supply chain of adequately trained REIs or clinical embryologists. Uh, whenever a new entity is going to try and set up a, a new chain or new centers in India, there's always going to be the problem of adequately and appropriately trained manpower unless and until you use the model of EV, you know, where you already uh, engage and incorporate REIs and embryologists who are already working in, in the centers which are available. What's to stop them, though, from uh, large companies like that? We're talking con- companies with hundreds of millions of dollars to say, we're going to set up either our own internal academy. Maybe we'll also, we'll, we'll, it won't just be our academy. Maybe we'll train other fertility specialists that end up working for different practices, or it will be internal. And we'll just say, Hey, if you're coming out of medical school and you're starting to train in OBGYN, come work for us. What's to stop that? Oh, that, that would be great. I think that would be great for all of us because if, if a big group with deep cash reserves and deep pockets and, you know, uh, requisite knowledge and requisite technical expertise uh, was interested in the field in India in order to set up uh, a big, uh, big training Institute then that would be great for patients. It would be great for the field in general. And of course, they would have enough business. I think the only issue is that uh, because training, certification and accreditation is, is a very complex issue in India. You know, it's, uh, it's partly regulated. It's partly controlled by central nodal agencies, which are government agencies. So you have those loops to go through. But if, uh, if those hurdles can be crossed, if you can start off this conversation with the national regulatory bodies which uh, which regulate medical education which regulate scientific education get the necessary clearances permits then yeah it would be great for the field i would be very open to actually partner with uh, with anybody who's interested to, to do such a thing because you know so of course you, you must be aware that the, the ivf unit in oxford is uh, one of the leading and one of one of the most cutting edge uh, units uh, in the world and We've actually been in conversation with them to, to start off something like you just mentioned, like a really robust training program here in India. But it's just so complicated with the different uh, legal and administrative hurdles that, uh, you know, it's still not happened. But that's a very exciting prospect. And yeah, there's a lot of scope for that. I personally would be very, very interested with something like so that. There's diff- so, so different government agencies regulate... Um, ostensibly broader fields of medicine but but reproductive medicine but they don't they don't have a training body for it is that is my understanding correct right right i mean there are there are specific training programs available in uh very in a small handful of hospitals and centers over the country but it's not very widespread you're absolutely correct but yes the field is regulated very closely 
Do private IVF practices, private fertility practices run the gamut in size in India like they do in the United States? Do you ha- is it common to see single fertility specialist practices or is it more common to see larger groups that have maybe 10 or 20 fertility specialists or or there's there's groups where there's three or four? Does it run the whole gamut or or is one size more common? No, I think you know with uh, with the increasing uh, with the increasing awareness about IVF and how it is a very viable and a very exciting option to have a child, uh, the demand for IVF has been rising steadily over the last few decades. So it's ve- it's been very difficult for a private center just to be running with one leading REI or one leading man. So every center now will have multiple doctors, will have multiple specialists REIs who are part of that center. But however, having said that. Uh, the most common model is still going to be where each center is really run by one leading REI man. And then there are others who are there associated with the center, but not in terms of equal partnerships between, you know, uh, equally shared between different REIs. That is also there. That model is also there, but not as common. Talk to us then about how these models differ from how they do in, in other countries. What, what you saw at Oxford and what you saw at Cambridge, how is that different from what you see across India? Yeah, you know, so there are, uh, there are two primary differences, I think. The, the first one is, like I said, uh, in the UK, and I've, I've been closely associated with the Oxford Fertility Unit or the OFU. I've had some experience visiting the Cambridge uh, IVF uh, setup. And apart from that, I've also, uh, you know, been part of uh, the the leading IVF unit in Glasgow, in Scotland, uh, the GCRM or the Glasgow Centre for Reproductive Medicine. And uh, from these experiences, uh, the differences are actually quite clear. They, they're plain in sight. All these centres really have going, what they've got going is uh, the concept of group practice, which you were mentioning, like a partnership between two, three or more different uh, REIs. In the UK, uh, this particular person is uh, is designated as a PR or a person responsible by the HFEA, which is the uh, Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority in the UK. So every every uh, IVF unit needs to have one REI designated as the person responsible. So that's just one person. But apart from that doctor, there will always be two, three, four or more others who are working together as partners, you know. Uh, so what that does is that le- that that opens up uh, a lot of collaborations, brainstorming, you know, academic exchanges. Uh, that's just the academic side of it. If if you look at the practical uh, aspects of running the center, it eases your workload. It's easier to schedule your work. It's easier to schedule your time away from work. Uh, you have someone to share in the different uh, aspects of both administra- administration as well as clinical work. In India, because you just have really one main guy who's in charge of an IVF unit, uh, although he might have multiple doctors working uh, with him, uh, it it becomes more of a hassle because uh, uh, the smallness of the structure of a lot of these IVF units means that uh, the same guy has to be focusing on the clinical aspects of it, the business promotion aspect, marketing, administration, everything really comes down to the main guy who's leading the IVF center. So, you know, it's not as, it's not as efficient. 
of course, it has its advantages as well. There's more autonomy. There's uh, more freedom to choose which direction you want to take and what you want to do. But it really hinders uh, it hinders growth because you know you're just dividing your time into so many different disparate uh, avenues. The other difference in the model, I think, is that uh, in the UK, and I think if if you remember the discussion at ASRM, Griffin, uh, we were speaking about four different models of IVF units in the U, in the U uh, in the US, and one of those was uh, the collaboration between an academic teaching-based institution and a private IVF center, how, you know, these two entities work in very close ties with each other. And that is also the model which I experienced uh, in the UK, both at Oxford and Cambridge. So both the OFU as well as the Cambridge unit, they are essentially privately run IVF units led by, you know, a few, a small handful of doctors, but with very close academic research ties with the University of Oxford and with the University of Cambridge. So, you know, you get the best of both the worlds. You have you have the stringent quality control and the professionalism and the SOPs, which are associated with a small, tightly run unit. But you also have the supply chain of uh, medical students and residents and trainees and the research collaborations the collaborations with research labs of non-clinicians. So you get best of both the worlds, both in terms of supply chain, in terms of academics, research, as well as the business part of it and the day-to-day management part of it. So I think that is what we need more of in India. We definitely need closer ties. We need to actually establish the model where a privately run IVF center is associated with a teaching research academic institution with close ties so that both patient care, academics, research, development, training of junior doctors can all run together. The four models for those uh, in the audience that were not at that ASRM talk are academic, someone that's purely academic, like a UC San Diego, right. an independently owned practice, someone that isn't a part of any type of network, such as a Dallas-Fort Worth Fertility Associates, Dr. Ravi Gata was their representative there, right? Uh, or someone that is part of a network that is, it's a corporately owned, it's a corporate network, or sometimes a, a called the corporate partnership and that takes typically a controlling equity stake in what had been an independent practice. And they're part of a a larger corporate network that's at least partly owned by private equity. And uh, what the model that Dr. Dushdar is referring to, Privademic, an example of that would be Boston IVF with Harvard and Brigham Women's or RMA of New York with Mount Sinai. Bish, what model does your center follow? So, yeah, it's, it's you know, the model which you mentioned, the private partnership that Dr. Gada's uh, clinic was uh, following in the U.S. And uh, uh, that's what we, we really are uh, a, a private unit. But uh, it's interesting that you came to this question, Griffin, because uh, there has been a, there's been a bit of change in the last couple of years. And uh, this needs to be addressed because uh, although we have been a private partnership, a private uh, IVF unit from the time that this uh, this institute was set up. Uh, very recently, as recent as in the last two years, we have entered into an academic partnership with one of the leading apex multi-speciality tertiary teaching hospitals in the state of West Bengal in Calcutta. Uh, in fact, if you look it up, you'll find it is 
the leading and the apex uh, referral uh, uh, hospital uh, with a glorious history of hundreds of years. It was one of the first multi-speciality teaching hospitals set up in the British era before India got its independence. And this is as recent as in the last one year. So we've entered into a, 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 a private-public partnership, or it's called a PPP model, uh, where our institute has been tasked with the uh, very exciting but also very challenging job of setting up Eastern India's first government-owned, government-housed, free-funded IVF center for the poor population within the IPGMER SSKM hospital. So IPGMER or Institute of Postgraduate Medical Education and Research uh, is one of India's premier and oldest uh, government sector multi-speciality tertiary referrals hospitals. And they have uh, tasked us based on, you know, our history of innovation and research over the last four decades. Uh, we, we are setting up an IVF unit within that hospital. So it's in a partnership model where we will be running the center. We will be providing uh, the technical know-how and the training. So we're the knowledge partner and IPGMER is going to act as, you know, uh, the, the, the infrastructure. They are going to be helping with uh, the infrastructure, the utilities, uh, setting up the costs of setting up the lab and the unit and so on and so forth. So it's very interesting development, very exciting development. I hope that this actually paves the way for new uh, initiatives and ventures like this throughout the country. So that's to serve the poor population that you said, that's to serve the f- folks that currently don't have access to IVF. Is that my no, correct yeah, understanding? It's very interesting. That's yes and no, Griffin, you know, because uh, in, in terms of who are the patients who are eligible to get treated at that uh, new and upcoming IVF unit, in terms of who are eligible, there are no strict cutoff criteria as yet. I mean, uh, the government might decide that it is going to enforce criteria for selection into that program, but it hasn't till now, unlike in the UK. So, in the, you, know, you know, in the UK, you have very strict criteria in terms of uh, how many cycles of IVF can be NHS funded in which part of the UK, depending on your address, depending on various different factors. So those uh, things haven't yet been decided. So anybody is eligible to avail of this free treatment. But it just so happens, you know, that uh, we don't foresee a lot of patients who are able to bear the costs of an IVF cycle flocking to that center immediately because, you know, it's going to be rushed. Uh, we already have uh, we already have a waiting list of patients which is running into thousand and over thousand, not even in the hundreds, uh, you know. So, so I, I, I still foresee that most uh, patients who can afford IVF will still go to privately owned IVF units, but uh, it's really going to be the poor population who need the subsidized treatment, who need the government funding for their treatment. India is a welfare country. You must be knowing that uh, healthcare is free of cost for all who can't afford it. It's only IVF, which was not under the purview of that free government-funded healthcare so far. So that's the attempt on the part of the government of West Bengal now to get IVF under the purview of free healthcare as well. So it's a bit under, it's, it's a bit similar to the Canadian model where you have Health Canada, you have universal healthcare across Canada, but in, in most provinces, IVF is not funded. And even the ones that it is, is to varying degrees. And I remember when the province of Ontario, this is probably six or seven years ago, released their 
their funding program, it was an awkward start because you had such a need because you had a population that was used to receiving free health care. They're not used to paying for it outside of a, a, a few a few specialized things. And uh, and so they, they you know, they did a lottery system. And I don't know if they still do that lottery system, but it was like, oh, should I pay for my IVF cycle now and go through treatment or should I wait to see if I qualify in this lottery? It was uh, I I would love an update for those of our, our listeners from Ontario to give me an update and maybe I'll even bring you on the show and we can talk about it. But it was uh, it, that that a lot to figure out in the beginning. How do you think they're going to try to to do this if you have you have a country of almost a one and a half billion people you have huge rates of poverty and uh and you, you you know we think the the number of people that can't afford ivf in the united states is high and it is it's dwarfed in india and so how, how are they gonna, how are they gonna roll this out well for sure it's gonna be challenging you know it's gonna be challenging and before you know before i come to your question uh answer your question directly if, if, if i can just touch upon the the four different models that we discussed at asrm griffin so you know the first model that we discussed was uh the large teaching hospital ivf unit right which is uh, a rarity which is an absolute rarity in india it is few and far in between i think the most prominent one would be the one at the all india institute of medical sciences or aims in delhi then there are a few uh, here and there, but it's a rarity. Uh, another model which we spoke about at ASRM was the corporate-owned uh, IVF chain, where a big corporate house, a big uh, company with deep pockets is funding, setting up different IVF centers or, or acquiring different currently uh, uh, functional IVF centers. So that is something which has been happening in India, like I told you before as well, for the last couple of decades or so. By... And large, the vast majority of IVF centers in India still follow uh, the privately owned, privately run IVF unit model, which uh, was the Dr. Gada's model, uh, who was there at ASRM. And I think uh, it's very, very, very few privademic IVF units, like we mentioned ASRM, you know, the fourth model where you have a private IVF uh, unit with close ties linked to an established large academic research medical teaching center. So I think that's really rare as well. And that's what we are trying to achieve here in, in Calcutta uh, with our partnership with uh, IPGMER, the government of West Bengal. So hopefully this will uh, lead to more such initiatives. And uh, to answer your question, I'm not really sure, you know, uh, I don't have a clear answer for you. It's uh, it's just something that we have to wait. We have to wait and see how how this uh, how this really rolls out. We talked uh, a little bit about models and how they're paid for. Mostly, it seems private payer. Is it almost? Uh, and this is the question I was fighting to remember to ask you earlier in the show. Is it almost one hundred percent self pay in India right now? Is there any? Is there are there any insurance companies that cover IVF? Are there any companies like Progeny, Carrot, and Kindbody that work with employers to broker it as a benefit? Or are we talking virtually all self-pay for IVF patients? Griffin, if you were able to act as a facilitator 
to get these guys into India, then I cannot tell you what a massive market they would come into India to encounter because, you know, we are in dire need of that. We don't really have that in any large scale throughout the country. There are a few schemes. There are a few healthcare schemes and insurance schemes which uh, do have IVF under their purview. For example, some of the central government health schemes, or CGHS as we call them here in India, uh, they uh, offer insurance and, and funding for a certain number of IVF cycles for their employees. Uh, there might be few schemes here and there, but by and large, uh, healthcare for IVF in India, the vast majority of it is paid out of pocket by the patients. And uh, apart from those few, the small handful of government-funded centers where it's, of course, free of cost which is also what we are trying to achieve in uh, this new unit that's coming up at IPGMER. How many IVF cycles does the typical fertility doctor do in India? Oh, it varies. You know, it, it varies widely. So I think, uh, uh, are you talking about a particular fertility center, like one particular IVF unit? I would say one doc. I'd say, so I would say in the United States, if you're doing less than 150 retrievals a year, it's, yeah. there's pro- either it's either it's not your full time job, or maybe you know maybe you're at a, a private center that it's in trouble. I would we usually don't see fertility specialists doing less than 150. Probably 180 is probably the average, and then it's, it's it's quite common to see in the 200s. But then you have a couple. There's a couple docs in in. California that are doing 800 retrievals a year. And there's one fertility specialist in Chicago, Dr. Rui Jelani, whose podcast episode will have aired before yours. It told me she did 1300 in 2022. Wow. And so, uh, so what kind of range is typical for an Indian fertility? I think it's, it's pretty similar here uh, in India, Griffin. So if you find an IVF unit that's doing less than a hundred and it's exactly the same numbers I would have quoted to you as well. Uh, uh, who's doing less than 150 cycles a year or maybe less than 100 cycles a year. That's really low. That's that's not possibly a very prominent IVF center. Whereas the really, really busy IVF centers would be doing around maybe uh, 500, 600 cycles uh, a year. We in our center, in our unit here, we are typically doing around in the, in the 400s, around 400, 430 cycles a year. Uh, but yeah, it would be around, uh, at least 150 cycles for most uh, centers, which are doing well at, at the very least. You've given us such an interesting intro into the Indian IVF market, into the history of reproductive medicine in India, into how the model works. Our audience is almost entirely practice owners, docs, execs in lots of different companies in the fertility field. They are starting to pay attention to India. How would you like to, and some of them, of course, have been paying. I don't, I mean, as a, as an aggregate, they're starting to. Some of them, of course, have been paying much deeper attention than I for a long time. But how would you like to conclude with them? You know, I, I would just like to say that uh, there is a lot of scope in India, in the IVF field. The problem is that there are also a lot of hurdles to get across, a lot of hoops that you have to get through. Uh, but there's no doubt about the fact that uh, I think really two, two points to conclude is that on the one hand, we need uh, a more structured and robust 
supply chain in terms of training and education. That's A. B, we need more private demic models of IVF units in India, where you have a private center, you have academics, research going on. And C, yes, if, uh, if we could actually arrange insurance, uh, wide coverage, uh, and bring IVF under the purview of insurance, that would really be a game changer. We will put your social media profiles and that of the organizations that you work with as well in the show notes. We'll tag it. Uh, and I won't put your email address in any of those. But if people email me and they say they want to talk to you, do I have your permission to connect them with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But for starters, yeah, you can put up my social media information. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to to respond to emails if they if they're channeled through you why not for sure i'd love to help dr bishwanath kosh dastidar you are the first guest to talk about the indian ivf market i do not believe that you will be the last and uh, you will not be the last so uh i hope to have many more thank you so much for bringing this topic into our arsenal thank you for coming on the show thank you so much griffin it's been a pleasure it's been interesting and uh I really wish that and I really hope that your show and your podcast gets more viewers and more people engage on these very important issues, which are not very frequently discussed. And uh, it's been great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.